Oh, okay. Well, you can do it again if you want. Yeah, it wasn't a good joke. No. <laughs> All right, folks. For those who missed it, <laughs> presenting the Long Island joke. See that that made it funnier. <laughs> Liz, what did you do this weekend? Uh, I went to the Long Island uh, Retro Game Festival, where I whatever the fuck it's called, where I saw Frank, and That's he told true. me about a knitting game. Brandon, did you have any questions about that? None. <laughs> I have no comments. No comments about Long Island. That was not the joke. That is the new joke. The new joke. Oh, Lord. It's body time. This is episode 301 of Insert Credit, where since 2012, we've been delivering snappy answers from video game experts on the topics of the day to the tune of a horrible buzzer. I'm Alex Jaffe, and in Earthbound, I input my favorite thing as lists. Ooh, um, gosh, uh, my name is Frank Zafaldi, and in Earthbound, I input my favorite thing. It's kind of a different thing every time. Yeah, you just have to pick one. Right, I know. I, I, I understand <laughs> the, the, the point of a prompt, Jaffe. But uh, typically, I just kind of roll through the, the pre-existing ones because uh, I'm, I'm one who, uh, who uh, hits random like three times on the character creator and goes good enough and presses start. So, so my equivalent of that in Earthbound is uh, hitting select or whatever it is and going, I don't know, that one, pizza, sure. Well, I'm Brandon Sheffield, and I've never played Earthbound still. But if you were to play Earthbound and the game prompted you to put in your favorite thing in a limited menu of, uh, I think, six characters or less, what would it be? I mean, I think I need some context for what that even, like, well, you're you not don't know when you that start context the game. When you yeah, start you're not given. So do you want to be a new player or, or, a, or a veteran player in the scenario? All right, I'd say dogs. Okay. That's, that's good. Great. Absolutely perfect. Um, that means that later on when you, when you sorry uh, to interrupt whoever that was, I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out. Um, <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> To, to give context, Brandon, um, as as uh, your psychic powers uh, progress and you have a psychic attack, uh, you can now attack later in the game with Psy Dogs. So it's oh, okay. a really excellent choice. I see. Yeah. Also, uh, by the way, my name is Liz Ryerson. I've been on this podcast a few times before. Correct. I think if you enter your favorite food as something your mom will say, like, next time you want to have some blank. Oh, right. So I did... I'm sorry to say, I think the last time I played it, I did enter poop because I <laughs> thought it was funny. Nice. And like, you know, sometimes you when you do stuff like that, you forget about it and then yeah. you're reminded halfway through the game and it's it's like, what? Why are they saying that? Oh, right. And it's pretty funny. So pretty good. It's good news. I think I'll take it. Scatological humor remains amusing even past the age of five. Uh, <laughs> I, I can confirm. I was going to write an episode this week, but one of our listeners reminded me that a hundred episodes ago, I promised that starting with episode 301, uh, this entire show would only be recycled questions. But that can't be real. That's not going to really happen. This week, I am kind of trying that more or less. I've modified a few of them. This is our revisitation episode, and we'll figure out if this is uh, how the show goes on autopilot from here on out. No, it's not, is what I'm telling you right now. It's diminishing <laughs> returns from here on out. It's not going yeah. to. You, you witnessed the jump the shark moment. Yeah. We, we can do it this time, but uh, that was a funny joke. Ooh, let's do it one time. <laughs> my... For our first topic, 
I think we can combine a couple recent events into a single question for us to discuss at the top of the show. Right now, in August of 2023, what the hell is wrong with game journalism? Uh, that's a tough one. Uh, There's a lot that's been happening lately. Oh boy, I have not been paying attention, so well, this it's is okay. going to be interesting. Okay. I mean, basically, the, what's wrong with it is that because there's been no good money in doing it right for a long time, doing it badly or poorly is kind of all that's left in many cases. You know, with Patricia Hernandez being fired from Kotaku, she did a uh, uh, like an interview about it and was talking about how it, like execs basically wouldn't let you write about certain things. And everyone is being channeled into just a few topics about just a few games. And ultimately, guides and stuff are what actually make money. And they're trying to make AI be a thing with some of these. And so I think really what's wrong with game journalism right now is that it's, it's like not really a viable job anymore for most people. And the very few people that are still able to do it are doing it under weird controls and under the thumb of weirdos and sometimes they are encouraged to do things that are completely sensationalist and not journalism and uh, I, I wrote a little article about that which you can read on insert credit mm -hmm. read yeah i know which leads them to be harassed by people for like i actually like looked this up at some point because i was wondering why so many people were obsessed with kotaku like what where this like originally came from and like most of the criticisms i saw were just people being like oh it's clickbait and it's like okay but that's the economy of everything so why is kotaku and i and i don't know the answer but like it's so frustrating because it's not just like, you know, you're working at the whims of whoever is in charge who, you know, is trying to maximize profit and, and minimize quality. It's also just like, I feel like so much of it has been thrown out into like the influencer kind of landscape. Like, yeah, there's just so much misinformation out there. And I think that's goes in general with like just the entire landscape of games but like the the median like information like gamer opinion is still like what determines how people react to and respond to things and like a lot of youtube influencers etc are the ones who perpetuate that and like there might be good ones there's probably more better ones now than there were you know like seven or eight years ago, but they're still reacting to, like, the median opinion, which is, like, this kind of, like, bruh, consumer, like, it, it tends to blame developers for things that go wrong. They don't tend to be interested in looking at, like, material conditions of how games are made or the leadership or, like, why things are the way that they are. They just tend to be, like, an angry reaction. And ironically, it's the same clickbait problem that the that people complain about with Kotaku, but because there's, like, a fake there that somebody has invested in it's just like i guess they they're blind to seeing that or something but like i don't know i just feel like the youtube influencer economy has like taken over so much of the space like especially game criticism like it's happening now for game journalism but like game criticism like tend tended to fall apart like blogs people don't really read them as much as they used to or anything like that so like 
it just means that anybody who's getting into games, like their perception of what the landscape is, is based off of like whatever content creator ecosystem that they bought into, which may or may not be completely right or completely wrong. And and maybe the person presents whatever they're saying is like objective facts or reality. So you have a bunch of people with different perceptions of reality of like what the space is all connecting to each other. And because like GameSphere is so like privatized, it's so like ever you know, it's just whoever is successful enough is right, basically. That's like the attitude. So that gets to define and like set the terms. And I think that's really, really bad. <laughs> to the Kotaku thing, that really kicked off in 2014. It was very uh it was very Gamergate reaction. And I disagree. There there was some there was a there was a proto version of it before that that was very yeah, Kotaku. I do remember it. I yeah. remember people being obsessed with Tim's article about living in Japan. Like, ever, I yeah. remember seeing the internet, and that was like 2010 or something. But I mean, that yeah. was that, there was a proto version of it, but that was when it really like kicked off and became pervasive. I would say uh, much more so, and I think that a lot of the kind of reaction video stuff parrots similar talking points to what was going on back then because it's a very adversarial relationship between the idea of the consumer and the idea of the people making these games that theoretically only care about money or whatever. It's very unfortunate and it's hard to combat because, you know, they're still talking about like the game journalism establishment or media establishment and that barely exists anymore. Like it's well, like, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think we're low on time, but like, I want to, I want to add on to that. And, and also what Liz was saying about like, you know, influencers kind of taking over that space and i think this goes way beyond games i, I think that absolutely the current trend is that we no longer trust experts we trust individuals yeah. and yeah and I, I just think that you know all uh journalism and criticism is is uh subject to that and and games aren't as special as we think they are yeah and a, a rambling just asking questions youtube video is easier for people to agree with because it doesn't it doesn't make any points. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do any research. It just floats out these frustrations or these. It tells you what you want to hear, basically. It's all like. It tell, yeah, it tells you here's the trouble, and it's not your fault. It's these other people's fault. And, uh, and I don't know what the solution is, but there's definitely a problem, and here are the people that are causing it. I guess that's where the point comes in, is it makes kind of like a declarative statement about who's, who's in the wrong, but without thinking about it at all <laughs> but before we finish i i just want to say i i do think like i think about like youtube in 2016 and how it was like a very like right-wing dominated space and that's why people like contrapoints ended up joining like i talked to her on a podcast like years ago probably my most high profile guest and she basically said like i i got into youtube because there was so much like right-wing misinformation on the space and like that's also you know you can debate whether it was worthwhile to for her to like debate right-wing youtubers or like platform them or whatever but like that was kind of the idea behind it so maybe that needs to happen more with people who actually have experience with game development or like who have done journalism and and, like are interested in those things but i don't know it's just such a difficult thing to do and there have been more people who have done it but like the the median opinion is still like you know the the yeah and the problem is the people who could do a good job of this do not have the time to do yes so. right yeah okay Sadness. here's our next topic back in april of 2020 
I asked about the long-term effects of the COVID outbreak on video games. Uh, we had barely any idea what that would entail at the time. Uh, but now looking back uh, from on the world that's that we've been in, let, let me retake that sentence. All right. No, don't. No, no. Keep it. Uh, <laughs> keep it in. <laughs> Frank, I know you're personally invested in making me sound like a rambling fool. <laughs> I lost my train of thought there. I tried to go off script and face planted. Anyway, what happened with COVID? And we can start with uh, brain fog of our uh, podcast hosts. Yeah, well, a lot of things happened with COVID. A lot of games got delayed, and we're still feeling the ramifications of that for sure. Also, the kind of work from home thing has always been a little more present in games than it was in other uh, fields, but definitely that's like a pretty dominant thing. And anybody who is saying we want you to come work in an office is a lot less likely to get applicants at this point because nobody wants to do it anymore. It it's it's never been that I mean it's good for certain parts of game development, but you can replicate a lot of it with Zoom. But I actually don't know and I think this is part of where we got a lot of delays. I don't know how well that scales beyond like a team of my size. A team of you know, fifteen people can do that. But a team of 300, they have to break into a bunch of little groups. And then the producers are reporting back to the directors and all this stuff. And, and it gets a little muddled and murky there. But yeah, that's that's another big aspect. Another thing is there was a huge surge of interest in buying games at the start mm -hmm. in 2020. And a lot of companies were banking on that trend continuing. And it did not. Like... People still buy games, obviously, but the the massive hits that you could have in 2020 are not possible in the same way for like a single player stay at home kind of a video game. Animal Crossing type. Yeah, stuff. Animal Crossing, Doom. That period was kind of a, a blip because it took like un Untitled Goose Game was before that, but it, it took games of that ilk kind of with it, short hike and stuff, uh, which was great. But it, that bubble has kind of burst and it's kind of back to normal, which isn't a problem, but companies definitely did take some, they were like hedging their bets that maybe this is going to keep going. I, I have a suspicion and, and I, I, I remember during COVID that, um, you know, that video games were kind of on the up. Uh, revenue wise yeah and also very specifically that like retro games were on the up revenue wise i suspect that that's coming from a place of uh seeking comfort in an uncertain time mm -hmm. so i do wonder if there's sort of a mini retro bubble that we maybe don't realize has popped yet i, th oh. I think so especially when you look at the so I, I continue to purchase video games. For some reason. Oh, I was thinking new, new yeah, games. Yeah, I know. There. I know you're thinking okay. about new retro, but but I think this is also kind of a, not a symptom, but an example of it, because sure. all the game prices just shot right up yeah, in, it's, in 2020. It's insane. Some of them never really went down, and some of them did. Some of them never went down, and others went like way back down because everybody bought them at that time, but like records just have gone through the roof. And reselling vinyl records is an actual thing that you can do. You buy the limited ones and then you re you flip them for ten bucks more or whatever. It's <sighs> it's very ridiculous. The the whole like limited release vinyl. I'll finish. I'll wait for you to finish talking. <laughs> it's okay. About it's that. very. It's fr but I do think that it is indicative of what you say, Frank. That people were seeking comfort and they're wanting things that are familiar to them to 
ground themselves in this unfamiliar space. And I think some new retro games did come along with that. But now I think you have to be more intelligent about it and make... I think TMNT is doing a great job with their revival right now with the the new game and then the collection were both very well received and like the new beat 'em up mm-hmm. from uh tribute that game was just i wonder if it if something like that will help people realize this is what i've been saying along you you don't need to make the game that people remember you need to make the the game that people think they remember you need to make yeah. the feeling that they that they thought they had at that time and that's what that new teenage mutant ninja turtles game does like it totally gives you that feeling of being a kid in a pizza shop uh, all the cute little animations on the side and stuff. So yeah, I think there is that, but I also do think it has kind of burst in a lot of newer retro games I've seen in the last few months from indie devs have not really done as much. Yeah, that I mean, that makes sense. I think uh, what, what both you and Frank said about there being like a mini bubble, especially for certain types of games, I think is probably true, especially like games that are prioritize a certain kind of comfort, yeah. uh, we'll just say. Because I don't want to say the actual word that <laughs> a lot of these kinds of games are called, but um, I think it's also like there's a certain kind of oversaturation in like uh, things that are very focused in specific genres, and after a while, the genre becomes uh, oversaturated. And, but one thing that you both didn't mention is that um, the music industry was really trying to push like concerts in like Fortnite and yeah, um, yeah. Mm. and like Minecraft and stuff, but especially Fortnite. And there was like floated for a while like this idea like that this might be the future, and then that didn't end up coming to pass at all. So but those did work. Those com- those uh, concerts worked quite well. And hundred gex in Minecraft is like wow. Yeah, yeah. I think that was more organic than the the Fortnite ones where they gave artists like Ariana Grande or um, yeah. Travis Scott or they gave them a big yeah they gave them tons of money I think there are a lot of things that were like floated over the pandemic that never ended up happening Um, I definitely think there are certain markets that that had a surge and that are coming back down stuff with retro games is like retro games did get really expensive they have been getting steadily more expensive like older retro games Okay. But anyway, the point is that uh, some of the prices have not gone down, though. And, like, I do think physical media as, like, a boutique object is probably here to stay, which is so frustrating when it comes to, like, the vinyl market and the resale value for, like, limited release stuff. But Yeah, I just yeah have that's to a whole other. Plus one this for a second, because I was in a used record store called Rasputin out in Berkeley. and I've been there, yeah. I had the... Uh, the the fortune slash mis- misfortune to be browsing near some young people, <laughs> oh no! And Youth. they were talking about how they they love analog media because it can mess with you. Like for example, your uh, you can't play cassettes in older cars because they don't have Bluetooth. Uh, because the way that you play cassettes, of course, is you get some kind of Bluetooth attachment. Uh, cassette player and put it in your car. Um, they didn't conceive that, you know, cars used to have cassette players inside of them. That's what right. an old car is. Um, and another guy being like, yeah, I just love the feeling of going up to my vinyl player and blah, blah, blah. Like People vinyl. calling it a vinyl player. Calling it vinyl it's, players. It's not, what it, it's not what it's called. Vinyl's the material. Everybody in there is like, oh, I, I love vinyls. I can't wait to get some more vinyls. <laughs> 
And I heard also uh, that through, I heard a lot of people talking <laughs> during this excursion because unfortunately I forgot my headphones. And uh, someone was talking about how uh, Mariah Carey is super underrated, um, as though she's this artist. That I, I love Mariah Carey, but she's Not quite rated. Underrated. <laughs> Pe- people, uh, people know who she is. This, this, she was being talked about as though she was an underground musician that wasn't getting enough play. It, it was just a what what a time what a time but maybe that's something that also came out of the pandemic <laughs> well yeah rasputin rasputin is a particularly weird store and it's right on the campus of berkeley so i feel like it attracts some yeah, of that so there's gonna be young people i had a roommate who used to work there actually so i heard a lot of stories i worked at the one in newark so i want to imagine there's a guy out there who uh, refers to their collection of funko pops as their vinyls <laughs> they should. They they should. Yeah, that that's the new thing to do. Yeah. Uh, here's my next question. This question was submitted by uh, previous episode winner Liz Ryerson, who asked, oh. "What's the hot new genre of video game in the year 2050?" Oh wow, wow. I don't know who came up with that, but that's not a very good question. <laughs> okay, 2050. 2050. Um, it'll be uh, a simulation of uh, a society in which you socialize with other people in physical spaces. Yeah, it's going to be meta. Yeah. You're going to be able to see the bottom. You're going to be able to see your legs. You're going to see the bottom of your feet. Yeah. Actually, I, I wasn't going that angle, but that's that's fair, actually. <laughs> that's thought, a fair fair little call out. But I thought that was the joke you were making. No, it wasn't. No. I don't know. Like, I, I think we are getting more isolated, and I can see like social games, even if they're fake social, being uh, uh, the taste of... Uh, people uh escaping uh to their air-conditioned homes because they can't go outside anymore but is it new i'm trying to think in 2050 i i feel like so there's there's tends to be like a 20 and 30 year cycle because i'm trying to think back to what was popular like 25 years ago Mm -hmm. and it was like fps games i guess yeah Um, that's popular again now boomer shooters are back so i could imagine that it would be like whatever like the most uh, current form of like indie game, something that it, that it hasn't had a nostalgia cycle yet. Like it could be that combined with feeling socially isolated. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it could be games like Unpacking or or Ooblets or something. Like maybe that's what will get a revival. Yeah, but like some weird combo like version of it. Like maybe where it combines it with some other genre that's like cool right now, or I don't know. Trying to think. Yeah, maybe we'll get uh, something that would be interesting would be if those games that are popular in Europe but never make it over here. Like if we had a farming sim MMO and every, everybody is working on the farm and doing their, doing their work on the farm and talking oh, to each sim other. Sim commune. Sim commune. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe like like a Zelda game, but with that, you know, with like mechanics that have nothing to do. We're like unpacking mechanics and farm sim mechanics in it or something where it's like half a Zelda or Metroidvania type game and then half that or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think like what's going to be. We can't predict five years from now. So what what are you thinking about? From now, but (laughs) I'm just, I'm trying to think about like, will, will people be like, I, I remember Fortnite 1.0 or whatever. Are we are we going to want to have Fortnite classic. The, the old Fortnite back? Like when there's WoW Classic or whatever. Yeah. I feel like something like that could be the deal or maybe we'll get into... I feel like there's a future in which people get excited about pirate knockoff versions of famous 
games. That's true. Uh, potentially in the future, where it's it's like I don't want to play uh, Fortnite. I want to play Five Night, which is a <laughs> some some AI clone that that got put together and is really weird and stilted and maybe people will be really interested in that at some point like i think when i originally posed that question i imagined like and maybe this is too like retro futurist of me but like the idea of just something having really grotesque like aesthetics like a cruelty squad type thing except yeah. whatever the 20 or 30 year version later version of that is it's something that feels like totally unparsable to us now but is like some combination of that and like current hip games or whatever yeah, like, like, a, like a skill shooter farming sim <laughs> yeah i'd probably check it out <laughs> all right here's another question from liz ryerson who asked what's your favorite rom hack mm. um i have a definitive answer to this now i was hoping you would and it's b3313 or whatever it's fucking called the yume nikki style mario 64 rom hack oh i know this one yes yeah because it's it's i mean like some of the concept of it is like about that meme about like every copy of mario 64 being personalized or like the heavy like iceberg meme type references to like beta versions of the game and i don't care about any of that stuff but the experience of it is definitely quite like i've played a little bit of it and i watched a friend play it it's quite like surreal and it does feel a little bit like yume nikki-esque which um i really like yume nikki and i like the idea of it being transported into a game with a little more like you know mario type mechanics so uh that's that's what i would yeah it's b3313 and i think the official like 1.0 1.0 version is coming out at some point soon or has i don't know i have a, I have a cheat answer the current english patch for mother three ah. <laughs> i don't know that it's not really a cheat because it's like the the amount of rom hacking that had to happen to make everything work was pretty incredible that game is a mess under the hood like it has you know like 12 different systems for displaying text you know instead of the one it's supposed to have um and uh, if, you, if you followed along with uh, Tomato's blog, it was it was quite a journey to make it work. And the end result feels like a commercial product. When was the latest one released? I, I feel like they did a bug fix very, very posthumously. Like the, the, the biggest bug was that they couldn't figure out, like after you put in your name and, and uh, your favorite thing and press start, the the performance like dropped a lot as the as the colors like faded out you could hear the audio popping and stuff that was like the one major bug and then years later they fixed it so it's now just kind of a perfect game yeah i see they released 1.3 in 2021 which is yeah. pretty amazing yeah um they added features to the game that are oops excuse me let's do that again i hit my tile and uh found my phone um no no keep it in keep it in <laughs> keep it in i don't care what was I going to say? They added features to the game that, that were like uh, in the ROM, but disabled. So you can like kind of access things like debug rooms and, and stuff like that, like in game. Um, there was like a feature, I think, to that like kept a journal of your progress or something like that. And it's in there and translated. It's it's a really, really substantial and polished and like ready to publish ROM hack because the idea was they were making something that they hoped Nintendo would just put on a cart. You know, um, so that's my answer. My answer is kind of a cheat as well, because I was thinking the exact same thing as Frank. <laughs> um, games like Private Idol and uh, Fushigi, no, you may know Alice for PC Engine. These games got translations in the last year that 
significant work had to be done to get the fonts working. And like in Fushigino, you may know Alice, you have to translate her little kya attack into a eek instead. So they just made new graphics for it. I like that stuff. I think that's cool. I think there are a lot of really good, interesting ROM hacks out there, but I am not really as aware of them. What I would like to happen is for someone to find a way to port the the uh, Sonic Triple Trouble Genesis, which was a remake of Sonic Triple Trouble for the Game Gear on PC. I want someone to now downport that to the Genesis. Oh, just play the version they made, man. <laughs> what, what do you get out of it being on a Genesis? It's a different Sonic game. Pe- pe- people are always doing nonsense stuff like this, so like, why not do this? Why, would, why wouldn't someone do that? If it's someone the- wants to do nonsense, sure, instead of like something real. And people do want to do nonsense, and I and I they do. It. It's true. I, it's true. I want people to do that nonsense. People love to do nonsense, especially when their favorite blue hedgehog is involved. People do all kinds of nonsense for that guy. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. Sonic nonsense. That's true. I want to throw in before we run out of time that yeah, um, I, I wanted to throw. You know what? We're going to give Liz time too because this is Liz's question. But I'm going to go first because I interrupted first. Um, <laughs> That's the rule. So um, I have watched ROM hacking evolve from ROM hacking to reverse engineering. All of the really intense ROM hacks, like there's a version of Star Fox that like just improves performance significantly and just yeah. runs on stock hardware, stuff like that. Like that all comes from actually reverse engineering and and building like a build environment for the game as if you were just, you know, straight up making that game. Um, and, and that's been a really cool way that that I've seen this evolve. I mean, I, I have some personal experience with that with um the the fantasy star retranslation that that I worked on. I mean, that's you know, his, his GitHub for that, Maxim's GitHub, it it's just a GitHub for building and making fantasy star, you know, like you can do anything to it. And uh it's been really cool to see things evolve in that way as opposed to just sort of poking and prodding at the existing ROM and changing things and, and hoping it doesn't break. Yeah, there was that Mortal Kombat remake on the Genesis, which oh. tried to make it as close as possible to the arcade version. Yeah, and I, I like that kind of stuff. Uh, Liz, you had one more. Oh yeah, no, um, I I totally agree with Frank. Like ROM hacking is becoming more like game development. I mean, it's becoming more like modding was. You yeah, know, yeah, or modding still is, but like modding is something that is like officially supported in some way, and and ROM hacking is not. But another one I wanted to throw in that I played last year is called Peach's Adventure. It's a Super Mario World ROM hack, and you play as Peach, and she's has a she is gigantic. She has the most bizarre proportions, but it's actually uh, a lot of fun. It's very cute, um, and it's not too difficult, which is my main problem with like Super Mario World ROM hacks. It's very approachable. So yeah, people love to make these games harder instead. It's of... the problem that is like existed since the beginning of every modding yeah. scene, and ROM hacking is making things too hard. It's, I was going to ask, like Doom is probably like that, right? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Freaking slaughter maps. I mean, I could go on about that. But... I do want to play myhouse.wad at some point. I just watched My it. house, but I also want to recommend for the hundredth time alt, alt.wad. Uh, I wrote a whole article about it for Vice like five years ago. Um, but yeah, my house is also great. Uh, here is my next question. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> In previous episodes, I've asked which game has the best title and which game studio has the most accurate name. This week, I'm combining the two to ask, which video game has the most accurate title? Well, it's not Watch Dogs. No. I'll tell you that. No. <laughs> it isn't. 
Um, I'm gonna have to look through my Steam library for this. I, I, I believe that Atari is is selling a current game called like Run and Jump. Yeah, that's pretty true. I was gonna throw yeah, out like, something like Dino Crisis. Well, I don't think that's accurate because you're not running and jumping as you play the game. You're pressing keys to run and jump. It's also called Mister Run and Jump, which uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, and you might not be a Mister. Mm. You might not even be running it on a Mister. Well, it's a twenty six hundred ROM, so I could play it on a Mister. You could Virtua Quest is pretty accurate because you are going on a quest in a virtual world using Virtua characters. I think it would be a little more accurate if it was called Virtual Quest. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. There's a, there's a game called You Have to Win the Game. And I'm pretty sure you have to win the game to beat it. So. You have to, or what, though? Yeah, that's true. Okay, it, there, uh, I'm going to name several uh, NES Stephen's games. Sausage Roll. You just uh, roll sausages. Uh, that's a good one. Is yes. that more accurate than soccer? Mahjong? <laughs> Golf? No, right. it's not. That's, true. No, th- th- that's hard to beat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Those are probably the ones, I guess. But it would be more accurate if it were like video soccer. Or, yeah, um, they, they got that on the Atari. Yeah, that exists. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just uh, I'm adding to it because because technically it's not soccer. Yeah, Tim Rogers' Video Ball might be one of the most accurate video game names of all time. But he didn't make it by himself. Uh, yeah, but it's not called Tim Rogers' Video Ball. I'm just referring oh. to it as such. Right. Okay. To uh, kind of create that brand identity with our own show. Michael Kerwin's video ball. <laughs> Michael That's Kerwin's right. truck heck. Yes. Yeah, I don't know how, if we can beat virtual soccer. Uh, or virtual pinball. I I don't think there's even. I don't think we should even try to beat it. Yeah. I think the least accurate virtual pinball name is David's Midnight Magic. Like <laughs> I don't know who that guy is, and he's not in the game, and I'm not playing this at midnight, and it's not magic. I'm, yeah. I'm not. Ex- I'm not feeling the magic. <laughs> no. <laughs> Necronomicon pinball is also pretty inaccurate. Well, at least has pinball in it, so it's more accurate yeah. than David's Midnight Magic. It's true. It's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> I think that's it. We did so it. So our answer is soccer. I you think. know, Montezuma's Revenge, very inaccurate. I wasn't sick at all. Playing no. It. Right. <laughs> Felt great. Uh, what about Tetris? I mean, it is incredibly accurate because that's it's the name you made of it itself. Up. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. so, okay, Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. I mean, you can't disagree that he's a hedgehog and his name's Sonic. Cause what I don't know. You... It's I think it's very easy to dispute the fact based on the evidence in the game that Sonic is a hedgehog. He looks very little like a hedgehog. That's in terms of being a name that like abstractly reflects what the game is, I think Doom is a perfect name for what Doom is. But... In the feeling it inspires? Yeah, I think so. It's certainly yeah. aspirational, but it hits the target. Yeah. I would say Mario Brothers is more accurate than Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, because yeah. I'm yeah. Because that's a value judgment. Super anything, anything sixty four. Like, what does the sixty four mean? Right, that's no good. It means do the math. <laughs> you do steal cars in Grand Theft Auto, so that's not what, in real life. That's true. You also don't play soccer in real life when you're playing soccer. Right? Yeah, that's that's why I'm saying virtual soccer. Is oh, that's one. why you're saying virtual. Okay. Yeah, all right. Or all computer right. soccer or whatever. I think. I mean, that's it. I don't think we're going to beat that. That's yeah, the I think that's our winner. I guess we're just going to have to take a break right now, and we'll be right back. Frank, I uh, told my friend Corey to say hi to you at Long Island Comic Con. Uh, he said... I know Corey. Yeah, yeah. He's not just your friend. Yeah, he said you should tell me to go fuck myself, so uh, message received. 
I don't think I said that. I don't know what he's talking about. I'll open up my messages. <laughs> Hello. Frank sends his regards. He actually said something more to the effect of screw him, but I'm sure he meant well. I thought that's a little bit different <laughs> than go fuck yourself. That's... To whom? To me. Oh. Welcome back to the Insert Credit Show. In 2020, I asked who should get a PlayStation 5 and who should get an Xbox Series X? Oh, geez. Well, I feel like my answer at the time was no one, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it's probably still the case. So I'll have to try to answer this. Who should get a PlayStation 5 if you want to play that FIFA? People uh, people who, who play FIFA are more likely to get a PlayStation 5. I just learned this. They're like four times as, as likely Wow, a PlayStation 5. But the real answer is if you think that game subscriptions on console are the thing that you would like, you should probably get an Xbox. If you want to play the Sony games, you should get a PlayStation 5. That's, that's, that's kind of it. If you don't care as much about the Sony games, it makes more sense to get a an Xbox because you can get all those games on Game Pass. And yeah. I, I really don't actually like <laughs> this situation, <laughs> but twice this week... I've been like, oh, you know, I, I should play that Quake too, or uh, along a similar vein, I wanted to play Slayers X, that game that Jay Tholen made, which is like a. Oh, I still want to play that. Yeah, God. me too. And both of them, I was like, I guess I should go buy them. And then I was looking them up, and both of them are on Game Pass, and I was like, oh, well, I'll just download them. <laughs> and I feel bad about it, but it is like it's very I don't have to do any work either. In addition to not giving them money, I don't have to do any work to make it happen. So. It's bad, and I'm doing it. So what's that all about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when uh, when other people who have asked me who don't know about game stuff, I mean, I don't have any of the new consoles other than uh, the Switch, but I have said the same thing about getting the Xbox because of Game Pass, because like, it is convenient. Like, you can play all yeah. the new Yakuza's on there. Yeah, get whatever the, the cheap one is, right? The the white little white guy, the series whatever s, s. That it? yeah just get one of them and get your game pass and then boom video game though uh starfield is not going to run at a good frame rate on starfield that starfield <laughs> starfield and friends i just i just got that that was a garfield joke. <laughs> yeah. every time starfield i had this suspicion that the friends that, are there that starfield was going to be a, a a disaster or whatever but maybe i don't care anymore i got a rpg i don't need that yeah, yeah. You, you only need one. Yeah. Which one do you have? Do you have Baldur's Gate 3? Yeah. I hear that... Wizardry 2. <laughs> I hear that it came out on day one uh, completely perfect. That's what I heard. Uh, yeah, that's just yeah, just right out the womb. Yeah. yeah. Just popped right Who's out. Who's your Baldur's Gate 3 guy, Frank? Who are you playing as? I don't know. The vampire dude. I don't know their names. I don't care about them. No, don't you like make a guy? Captain Vampire. Oh, as as uh, discussed at the beginning of this thing, right? It's like, the random. hit random a couple times. It but in this random. case... In this case, uh, much more Earthbound. Like uh, you could choose between characters that already existed and had oh, their own okay. backstories and stuff. So I went for that. Ah, nice. I always hit the random button a few times until I get something kind of interesting, and then I mess with their features as much as possible so they don't look like human beings anymore. Classic. I try to get out of there as quick as I can with something that I won't don't mind looking at for the next few hours. Yeah, like. It, it, the the inhuman features stuff, I guess, works for something like Saints Row, but I'm not sure that I would want to look at a character with incredibly goofy proportions for like a 20, 30, 40 hour game. It reminds myself to not take anything too seriously, I think. But also it's fun for me because 
my partner likes character creators and things and uh is is always horrified by my process and that's fun <laughs> for me do you think this is symptomatic or a cause of the fact that you never empathize with your player it, characters? it, it is symptomatic it's it's it, i tried to make cool characters i tried to make characters that were interesting or had like a unique feature and i couldn't take it any more seriously than if their nose was five feet long <laughs> so so there you go yeah i mean i have xbox game pass and i don't have an xbox if you just have a really nice pc then you don't need an xbox yeah it works on there too yeah yeah i guess for people who like don't want to spend on it like that is the the answer to to have a, a nicer pc but um if people just want a console then yeah i guess the xbox my little prediction we, we we've talked about like is there a future in the console industry my prediction is that either this next console generation or the one after there won't be an ex a physical xbox anymore there will just be mm. game pass uh, microsoft will run game pass on pc that's a bold prediction, but I can see it. And uh, there will still be a PlayStation 6 and there will still be another Nintendo console. But I think we're, I think we're le leading toward Microsoft ha running a service instead of having a console. But a service on what? You know, like they, there's not a box that every living room has that will run console games. It's true, but there is another th <laughs> thought that I've had is could they get uh live if they didn't call it xbox on other platforms um yeah that i mean they could they, they've shown a willingness to do the opposite like i i mean i don't know if it was discussed on this show or not but um they put antstream on xbox and that's actually a big deal like antstream's whatever but they put a subscription game service on xbox and mm, like yeah. that's really fascinating and that's new I suspect that it was done because uh, they're they're trying to look good when when there's an antitrust case going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, but they did it. They set a precedent. Like there's now a service within their service, um, and I find that really interesting. This is a question I've been meaning to ask for a long time, but have been bumping for about a year, so it only feels like a revisitation to me. Okay, big bumping. Can a video game studio feasibly be run as a co-op? Oh goodness. Uh, I mean, yeah. People keep trying it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I wish I had my friend on to talk more about this who has more experience doing it. Um, I think it obviously depends on the size, but I mean, co-op mode is exists and still seems to be doing okay. Yeah, I know several people that are in game co-ops and a lot of them, I think the ones that work, you don't hear about so much. You wind up yes. hearing about the ones yes. that fall apart. I mean, but that's the same of any game company. Of course. of course. It absolutely does work. You just have to have the right people in place at the start and the right bylaws written up that make sure that if someone goes rogue, that there's a way to deal with that. Uh, I do know some unsuccessful co-ops, of course, but I also know some that are that are doing just fine. And I think the model is good. We don't run a co-op, but we pay everyone the same amount and everyone has a say in things. It's just that I'm the dictator as well. Like everyone has a say, but I make the final decision on everything. But people get more of a say in my company than they do in a lot of other companies, I guess. Uh, but it's not a co-op. I think a co-op could work. We just, it's its a lot of work to set up. <laughs> it's its one of those things where like if the, if the idea is to grow... A company which is like you know 
supposedly the idea of any company in this economy, like the idea is that you're supposed These to grow. These days, it's all growth. Then that becomes more difficult, and then it becomes more necessary to put things in place. But it, it's just difficult because of the nature of our economy makes running a co-op also more difficult um, because there's so many structures in place to help certain models of like business ownership. So I don't know. It's a it's a difficult thing, and it's not it's not something that you can just say, "Oh, we started a co-op, and then it's great." Yeah, pe- people don't know this, but it is really hard to get investment if you're, or harder to get investment if you're a co-op because yeah. the thing that an investor wants to see is a really clean structure. So, like a single member LLC, they're like perfect. One person is in charge and accountable for everything. But if they start to see a complicated, like we, the developers already have a board and now the investors are going to have their own board and then those boards have to interact. Suddenly it gets like, people get cold feet on that. So that's, I don't know, that's something that I think not a lot of people think about, but you know, that's capitalism right now. So it is feasible, but it's... uh... It's feasible, but it's harder. And it does do some good things. It, It offers certain protections for workers and things i have this little weird feeling though that is not gonna sit well with all of my left-wing socialist friends that sometimes when a co-op starts or when a company uh i see that they unionize or something it feels like it's it happens because there was a seed of distrust within the people working there quite often it takes the the, the people who are running it by surprise, and then it winds up being this kind of adversarial thing. And it there's there's just something in there that's a little unfortunate for me because it, it, I wish that it had, I guess what I'm saying is I wish it happened more often from the ground up where people were like excited to make a co-op rather than it being the result of some negative action. Is that <laughs> well, there's yeah. so much negative stuff happening. Of course. It, I mean, I, I think the problem is, and the reason why people do it in the first place, um, just to go back with basics about unionization, all that stuff is like, you could have a completely great situation at your job, and then the company could get bought out, or you could be under different leadership because the person who was a good boss left. Yeah, left. And, and then, then you're screwed. the situations completely change. And whoever had, I mean, it's the classic like, oh, our TV show was picked up because, you know, we had one executive that really liked us. And then it changed to a different executive and it got right. canceled. And that happens all the time to, you know, people working at companies. So yeah. part of doing it is to safeguard stuff like that from happening and to uh, get more security. But yeah, like a lot of the times that those things form is because of adversarial situations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's on, it's, it's just kind of, it's got a little weird vibe to it. But like you were saying, if for some reason I was going to leave Necrosoft, but Necrosoft was going to keep going, I would want to find a way for every major person involved to have a cut of a cut of the business, like for everyone to be able to take it over themselves. And so then I would have to set up a, like before I left, I would have to set up a co-op or a, a union situation or something like that to make sure that everyone was protected in case of my my replacement being an ogre all right good answer i believe one of our panelists first overheard this question at a conference but we never addressed it ourselves how much fun should you put in a game before it starts making money (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was me i heard that 
How much fun do you have to put into the game? How much where, where, fun where do did, you have to... Where did you overhear this? I'll just re- recap this. This was during a GDC China um, event, and Konami at the time was doing real well with some game about dragons on mobile. I can't remember what it was called. But they had some game on mobile that was doing gangbusters free-to-play style. And the speaker said at one point, you can't only be monetizing people. You have to give them some fun. You have to make some fun in there so that they feel like they want to keep doing this and then they'll give you money. And so, yeah, someone raised their hand and were like, with with a notepad out, was like, so how much fun do you have to put into the game in order to monetize it well? Is it, and and it, the way he said it was was almost like, please insert fun units kind of thing. Like, yeah. like do I need six funds or five funds? Uh, can I get away with right, five? Right, like, because each, each, each fun unit costs a, a, a Bitcoin or whatever. Yeah, It's like, yeah. how many and of those it, do it I was... have to exchange Yeah, before I make money, right? And so how I feel about that myself, how much fun do you have to put in, is you got to put a lot in at the front, and then you can kind of taper off for a while as long as that front-loaded fun was fun enough, because then I'll be like, maybe that fun's going to come back. Maybe the fun will return for me. Uh, and if it doesn't after let's say two hours, then I might be finished with it. But it's too late. They got your money. It's too late. They got they got my money. But I, I don't... In free-to-play, it's a That's tougher called one. Front, it's called the front-loading fun strategy. Yeah, FLF, we call it. Yeah, you got to put in a, at least seven funds for me. <laughs> Minimum. <laughs> there was a time in gaming history where you could get away with four, but our standards have risen. They've really risen. We're, we're at 7.3 now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the funter scale. I I mean, like my boring answer here is that fun is a completely arbitrary of uh, term. So. What? Since when? <laughs> I need to know fun units, Liz. Uh, since twenty fifteen. Oh, <laughs> so right. anything before what that in twenty fifteen? Yeah. Uh, this is stuff. You got to put fun in. Like I think that the reason that Frank and I completely beat uh fist forge and shadow torch is because that first hour was just so tight and solid wouldn't you say frank i like the whole thing i mean no, oh, no I, I liked it i liked it too but like okay but that first that first hour was so solid that i was like i gotta see the rest of this yeah i agree with that yeah it was uh it 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 did a pretty fantastic job of of uh and holding you through the mechanics and, and world. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, while simultaneously being like, you've turned on the game and now you're playing the game. It was just right. like... And also, like, you know, n- not just gameplay-wise, just like environmentally, you know, like it's, it's like mm-hmm. the, the, the first environments in that game are really compelling. And yeah. Yeah. So your argument is that the total fun is not as important as the placement of the fun. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that... Obviously, you want to have a game that's all fun all the way through. But who has the time? If that's if you don't have the time, do you want a game that's all fun all the way through? I kind of isn't do. that isn't that just like eating pixie sticks? Mm, but you get a, like a hangover after that and stuff. I, I feel like yeah. Well, because so Fist Forge and Shadow Torch was fun all the way through, but it wasn't as like slammed with fun as that first hour was necessarily it was still it was good all the way through and it had little peaks and valleys and stuff but that first hour was like yeah and to frank's point with the environment being interesting there's a real tendency that we have as game developers to hold back our good stuff for later yeah because we want people to be like excited later but put in the good stuff right away no 
Yeah. No, do the do do level one one last. That's, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That's yeah. And that's the Miyamoto way that he said once. Just like Mr. Mario and his wife say. Do, yeah. Doom also is like that was the case for Doom episode one. Mm, I didn't know that, but it makes sense. That's the way to do it. You know, you know what the hotness is. Now put it all at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a little worried about that because for the onboarding of Demon School, the first couple battles are not going to be as fun as later battles because we have to tell you how to play it, and I don't know how to get around it. So, what if you do one of those? Uh unbeatable bosses uh, at the beginning sort of things. Yeah, yeah. I think we're giving people other sorts of fun, but uh, yeah, it's something I really have to... I've, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, like how... What is my version of doing 1-1 one, one last? And I don't know. I don't quite have it yet. Yeah, for RPGs, that's a tough problem. It is. It I'll is. bet it's first boss, is my guess. I was thinking back to like when I was a teen and used to make like Wolfenstein 3D levels and I was like, well, I'm going to make this set with like, you know, 40 levels or whatever and and was always like excited to make the later maps because I'm like, oh, this is going to get super epic or whatever. But then like yeah. the earlier maps I like didn't want to do because, <laughs> because I'm like, oh, this is the shittier version yeah, yeah. Of, of like the, what, what they're going to see in the later maps. And it's like, that doesn't make Such sense. Such a weird compulsion that we have to to be yeah. like okay gonna make the good stuff and now we're gonna put a less good part of that at the front of the game because <laughs> like, they that? have to work up to it it's like why would i think that anyone would want to spend that much time if... yeah who wants to do that why do we think that i should do a whole video editorial about how developers are stupid and idiots for, for <laughs> not doing <laughs> okay sorry keep going i think it's time to go to our lightning round uh, this week we are going to the dirt bag uh, this is where listeners can submit their own questions by subscribing to patreon.com slash insert credit, where they can get access to this form, monthly bonus episodes, and other cool surprises. Surprise! This week, we are answering the very oldest question still active in our mailbag, which I haven't asked because I felt like it was too laborious for a single segment, but maybe for a lightning round where we don't have to think about it too much, it'll work okay. So it's like a shorter version of the two episodes ago. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so this is from Anonymous who says, write the Ten Commandments of video games. Uh, Frank, what was that what was that with the wizard and stuff? You, you remember you had that like morning ablution? Oh, kind sure. Of the beginning of uh, Skull and Crossbones uh, yeah. on the NES. So hang on. Let's, let's look that up. Maybe a Moby game. This will knock a few out. First of all, you have to have at least three pixels. Have yeah. at least three pixels. Yeah, you got to see that something's moving around. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's number one. Number two. Wow. Uh, Moby Games does not have screenshots of uh, the NES version. Uh, Rum, Colin, Frank, Cephalde. Num yeah, number guys, two, yeah. the people like sound effects. The people do like sound effects. I think the people should be capitalized here. Yeah. Okay. The people right. like sound effects. Okay. I got uh, five more. You ready? Okay. You must kill at least 15 enemies to move on. You must kill at least 15 enemies to move on. Do not waste weapons. Try to touch all booty. Do not touch skulls. Try to hurt the wizard every time you see him. Yeah, that's <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> Words to live by. There needs to be at least 15 different types of keys. You yeah. know, that's a good call. Okay, but they don't hurt the wizard. We need two more. We need two more. Never turn your back on black magic. Mmm. <laughs> Yeah. That's from uh, what's uh, what's it called? I forget the name. 
I'll remember it in a second. Anyway, what were you going to say, Brandon? <laughs> Brandon, you should get one in because Liz has five and Frank has Do the five. do. Do the do. <laughs> Our, uh, the, la- the last and most important commitment. Tower of Druaga. That's that's what it was. The Tower of Druaga, yeah. I was going to throw in the instructions for Pong. Yeah, do it, do it. Avoid missing ball for high score. I think that's a good one. <laughs> I that's think that's our one. 11th. Uh, which means, Frank, you win the episode. Congratulations. You have to do homework for next week. Wow. All I did was copy stuff off the internet, man. Yeah, but it was your idea to do that. Actually, no, it was Brandon's, Brandon's idea. idea to do that. Brandon, you win this episode. <laughs> Spring break. I love it. Ah, uh, spring break. I love to win. Uh, congratulations, everybody. You just recorded an episode. This yeah, is the us. point of the show where, if you'd like, you can recommend things to our audience. I'll do it. Either that's stuff you're working on or stuff you're enjoying or stuff you're not enjoying but want to inflict on others. So I watched a movie. I was always skeptical of Scott Adkins for some reason. He's a he's kind of like a B martial arts movie guy who's a... Hates carbohydrates. He hates... He hates... <laughs> he, he, uh... Uh, yeah, his his brother Scott Keto is. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with that joke. Anyway, uh, why would they have different last names? Um, the, <laughs> Scott Atkins. I knew him mostly for doing a lot of good interviews with cool B movie martial artists. Somehow, I didn't feel like he could carry a film, and I was convinced by someone to watch the movie Avengement. And now I'm sold, and I want to watch additional of his movies. It's a very British in a good way story about a guy who is uh, wronged and gets all beat up in prison and then becomes jacked and then goes on a, goes on a a taken mission. But it's, it's a taken mission that you see sort of in flashbacks and it's, it's just, it's a well-made dumb action movie in the style of well-made dumb action movies in the nineties, but it doesn't feel old or bad. So I'm going to recommend Avengement, starring Scott Atkins. That's a fun one. The end. All right. Very quick recommendations. I I recently took an airplane, and I thought, what if I watched good movies on an airplane? <laughs> Always a good question. Kind of unusual take, right? Um, I guess. So I watched uh, I watched uh, Twelve Angry Men and Fargo. Those are good movies. They're still good movies. So uh, I don't know those, but um, actual uh, recommendation. Um, the folks upstairs from me at Digital Eclipse uh, are are done with uh, a product that I think's pretty remarkable called the Making of Karataka. Mm. They spent a long time. That was like so long in the making or in the planning before the making. Yeah, I mean, th- this current version of it wasn't a crazy long schedule, but I feel like this is you yeah, know, one mean, of several iterations. It was percolating for a long time. Well, I mean, it came out the womb perfect, like you said. Exactly, you know, like, exactly. I, I haven't worked for the studio for quite a while now, but... This is always sort of the direction that that I had in mind to at least experiment with, which is just go very, very um, deep on one subject. Um, And in this case, it is Jordan Mechner's game development career at the start. Um, So it's it's a Karateka, which is a hit game, but it's also a game called Death Bounce, um, which was his first game that never got published but was worked on quite a bit. And and it is very much an interactive documentary that has games in it which was something that, you know, I, I, I always kind of wanted to see things go toward. I think Atari 50 was a really good uh, version of that. But I, I, I like this one because it's even more focused and Jordan kept all of his material. Like, you know, he wrote a scope of those games by photographing like his family. Yeah. Um, and he has all of those photos still like like the, this, this game. This game shows you literally how it was made. He kept a daily journal 
of making this game in like 1983 or whatever. Like that daily journal is incorporated into this game. It is an interactive timeline of a person in the early 80s creating video games and and the struggles that he went through and like they have in, in in the game you know in progress builds that like correspond to the journal you're reading so you get to like play the the game as it evolves um, that's so cool i that think it's cool. really remarkable as a product and and i suspect that it's going to have a really hard time finding an audience um yeah. because it is a very new type of thing that i don't I don't even know if there is an audience for, but I want to. I want to find out. So, um, if that sounds appealing to you, um, that's about to come out. This might. This might be the future of retro stuff. It might be a path that we never walk down again. But it's something worth looking at. I think. I and, love uh, it. Comes out end of the month. I think the making of Karataka. It's a really neat idea, and I'm the the thing that worries me a little bit is whether this game lives or dies on whether people are interested in karateka which i think yeah is they're they're not as but if this were like mega man it, well but if 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 it were like this is about game development and karateka is the subject of it which is actually what it is right and then yeah. it's in the title which i'm very happy about yeah it's it i i wonder if people are going to be able to make the leap. i hope they can make the leap because it's i think the point of it is that it's interesting even if you're not interested in Karateka as a game. It's yeah. it's like the behind the scenes documentary of your of 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 a movie, but if it's done in a way that's supposed to tell you about making movies, kind of. And yeah. it's a particular time and place too, which I think is yeah. is useful because like to a lot of people, the eighties didn't exist. <laughs> like right. the idea of like eighties game development is such so specific to time and place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is meant to be part of a series, and uh, I do know what the next one is, and it's pretty Ooh. cool. I, I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit. So I have a few things. One is I watched the movie uh, Peking Opera Blues by uh, Ch Choi Hark, uh, a Hong Kong movie, um, fairly recently, and it was good, so I recommend that. It's like about some friends taking down the imperialist something i think it's about japanese invasion of china or something but it's like mostly like a comedy action movie it's very good the second thing is i was on a podcast of my friends called to the white sea about the coen brothers the mm -hmm. films of the coen brothers i was on a recent episode but i just recommend the podcast in general called to the white sea um they're reading through a an old script uh, that was never of a movie by the coen brothers that was never made called to the white sea it, oh that's cool it, uh, a little bit each episode and then the structure is like based on that so we talked about a lot of scenes from various movies and the last thing is i'm like working on music actively and i'm trying to like do a better job of like trying to build up to something i'm i don't have any you know timetable when i'm releasing something but i just uh, recommending if you haven't and you're interested in my music i have a band camp and to follow me on band camp which you can do because uh, then you'll get email updates if there's any important, like, big... There's, like, a follow button on the Bandcamp page. So, yeah, if you could... If you're interested in my music, if you could do that, because um, it's probably a better way to see stuff than social media at this point. Cause Give me that URL. Uh, it is E-L-L-A-G-U-R-O-L-A-G-U-R-O.bandcamp.com. That'll be in the show notes. And there's a, there's a follow button on Bandcamp on each page like that you can just click on to do that because yeah it's a it's a easy, better way to to get information about stuff than trying to deal with social media right now that's everybody right 
Yep. Yes. Yeah. Well, hey, while you're doing that, I think some other cool things you could do are uh, Wishlist Demon School on Steam. You could buy Hyper Gunsport. Uh, You could listen to the Video Game History Hour. Uh, You could rate and review our show wherever and however you can. You can support us on patreon.com slash insert credit, where you could become a patron to submit your own questions, monthly bonus episodes, and more stuff. If you'd like to sponsor our show with an advertisement or personal message, it's easy and affordable. Just contact us at show at insertcredit.com. This episode is edited by Esper Quinn with original music by Kurt Feldman. I'm Alex Jaffe. I'm Frank Cifaldi. I'm Brandon Sheffield. And I'm Liz Ryerson. And never turn your back on black magic. Excellent. Terrific. Very good.